You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. Attention all parents out there. Whether you're one, you know a parent, or whether you've been paying any attention at all, you probably know that the pandemic was a breaking point for parents, and mothers in particular. Mothers are the shock absorbers of society. And everyone realized that when things fell apart, moms were just expected to be there to pick up the pieces. And if they ever complained about it, the response was, well, you decided to have kids, so suck it up. Jessica Gross is a New York Times opinion writer and creator of the New York Times Parenting Newsletter. She says the pandemic exposed a reality mothers have been living with for ages. Mothers have been talking about how difficult it is, and especially in the United States when we don't have things like paid sick leave, universal health care. Mothers have been talking about this, if only amongst themselves, for hundreds of years. The problem is that no one has been listening to them. Today, we're exploring moms at a breaking point with two experts who have been living with it and writing about it. Our first, Jessica Gross, whose new book, Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood, dismantles 200 years of unrealistic parenting expectations to empower all of you who might be struggling out there. You kind of analyze motherhood from an historic and a cultural and a government policy perspective. But I'm fascinated by the cultural implications and how culture has shaped our perceptions of motherhood. And, And I know that's an area of huge interest to you, too, that you deal with in the book. And one I I guess one of the primary antagonists of of this story is the quote unquote ideal mother. Yes. And and really the motherhood myth. So first, before we talk about today's ideal mother, how this came about and the letters that you read, I'm so interested from a historic perspective, how this came to be and has evolved in it into its current iteration. So, I mean, This is going to be a very truncated version of the history, but basically in early colonial America, mothers and fathers were both deeply involved in in raising children. I mean, everything was in the home. There wasn't a lot of um, activity outside the home period for anyone. They lived in rural America. And again, this is a vast oversimplification. So yeah, (laughs) okay, we'll bear with you. Yes. As industrialization happened, there became this divide where there was a domestic sphere and the public sphere and the public sphere was only for men and and the domestic sphere was for women and so as that happened let's say that's happening in the 1800s the victorian era um the idea of what a mother should be and the domestic role um became sort of crystallized and a lot of those ideas still are still with us today in terms of mothers main role in life and only role was to think of her children and herself 
her desires, her mind just had to be completely subsumed to whatever um, the was best for the child. And of course, this woman who was supposed to stay home with the children was always white and was always Christian. And it was many of the sort of cultural mores and, and laws that rose up at that time were either implicitly or explicitly anti-immigrant, anti-Black. Um, and so as time sort of progressed, you know, women said, I don't like this role. I want to do more than stay at home with my children more. And and more and more women being educated was a big part of this. So women getting higher education, women going into college. And so as the 20th century dawned, um, you saw lots of pushback from all quarters about, you know, home being the only place for a woman. Um, however, instead of those responsibilities becoming less emphasized for women, we just piled more responsibilities on top of it. So it's saying like, well, you can work, but of course, don't let anything drop at home ever. And also, you know, social media is sort of what is really new about the 21st century. And so women feel a lot of pressure to not only be perfect in all ways, and so be the ideal worker at work and be the ideal mother at home, but to also perform this publicly for an audience of either friends or the public. And we see other people who are influencers performing this sort of perfect motherhood. And that sort of makes it even, I think, a little bit more insidious because we're seeing these images, unrealistic images constantly. And even if I think most of us at this point know that they're not realistic and yet they still worm into our brains. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a pile instead of saying, OK, if mothers are doing other things besides mothering, you know, other people, their spouses, their family members, their friends, you know, people that they're paying money to care give who should be paid more money than they are. You know, it should be a group endeavor. But no, it is still this indiv individualistic mother should be able to do it all. Well, let's talk about mothers today. You're 40. You had some positive role models in not only in your own mother, but in terms of culture and the shows and, you know, the idea that women could work. But but where did that leave you in terms of your current parenting roles? Because you said in the book, you open with the line, I failed at ideal motherhood before I even had a child. Yeah. So I like to joke that I leaned into a toilet. Um, so because I had hyperemesis with my older daughter, which is extreme morning sickness. So I think the technical definition is that you lose 5% of your body weight. Um, I was extremely sick and I got very, very depressed and anxious. Um, I don't know if it was because I was not holding down any food or it was because I went off antidepressants to conceive. It was just, I was a mess. It was a mess. I had taken a brand new job um, and I, it was a first bigger management role. Um, and I had done so because I knew I wanted to have children and I didn't, um, I wanted to be sort of set up um, when I had kids that I was already sort of further along in my career. And I didn't realize that I was already pregnant when I started that job <laughs> um, because, you know, best laid plans. Um, and I ended up quitting that job because I realized that short-term disability would pay me so little that it just was not worth it. And I, I, I had to put my own health first and I basically stayed in bed for four months, um, after I quit that job because I just, I couldn't be far from a bathroom. And I know that's so crass, but it is the truth of, of how it was for me. Um, 
And so, you know, I did everything quote unquote, right. You know, I was married. I had no debt. I was, I got pregnant at 29 because I was so nervous about, um, you know, oh, you know, your fertility declines as you get into your thirties, you you better get on it. And it's still the way our system is set up. There was no room for me to have a difficult pregnancy and continue to work. And so, you know, I had already been reporting on the uh, inadequacies of policy for American families, but really living through it uh, taught me that lesson so deeply. (laughs) And so um, I think that was the low point in a lot of ways. Um, And in some ways, I not to be Pollyannish about it, but I think it was good for me to have that experience only because it made me more confident in my own instincts and intuition and to say, I, these ideals are crazy and they clearly are not working for most people. And to be able to sort of um, do what I thought was right for my family and my kids rather than what seemed to be the, the best or, you know, the most ideal. Or the more, most performative, because it sounds as if just as we got to a point where we were understanding or getting a better understanding of the pressures and complications of motherhood, of trying to quote unquote, have it all, social media came in and really set us back in a lot of ways. You mentioned about sort of mom influencers and all that jazz. I was surprised how big a role Mormonism played in that or is playing in that. Can you describe to our listeners how Mormon moms have kind of taken over the internet and what their impact has been? There is a sort of terminology for uh, the way that Mormon moms have sort of cornered the market on momfluencing, and it's called the blogger knackle, which I did not come up with, but I think is a very apt term. Um, And it is, um, and again, it's, you know, like every religion and every uh, faith, there are many people who believe many different things within that faith. So we're just talking about sort of a certain um, subset. subset. Um, and so there's an emphasis on record keeping and there is an emphasis on making things um, look a certain way. And so there and there's obviously an emphasis on traditional marriage and the nuclear family. Um, and so there was sort of already an infrastructure in place for Mormon moms to display their lives in a way that was very attractive um, to viewers and to show what was beautiful and exciting and lovely about motherhood. And I love looking at what they produce. It is beautiful. It is there. They make it look so effortless and lovely. And so I, you know, again, I think that the internet is big and there is room for every kind of mother, but that ended up being the vision of motherhood that was very appealing to advertisers because advertisers don't want anything that is controversial or that might, you know, rock the boat in any way. And it is very, it is much easier to sell a grinning, beautiful young mom with her beautiful children who are all dressed match in a matching way against the backdrop of beautiful mountains. That is an image that is easier to sell than an exhausted, you know, spit up covered you know, <laughs> disaster, like sinking into a couch, which is how most of us feel in the early motherhood days. And so, you know, it sort of becomes this self-perpetuating thing. 
where it's like, if that's what the algorithm supports, that's who's doing sponsored posts. I also, you know, heard from um, folks who had um, become momfluencers that if, if they live in very conservative communities, it's a way for them to work in a way that's acceptable and to have sort of a public voice in a way that's oh, acceptable. So interesting. That feels, yeah, that's, you know, again, I have only support for anyone living their motherhood how they want to live it. However, it is just not how many of us experience it. And I think it puts a pressure on um, on folks who don't conform to that very narrow vision um, to feel less than. There was a moment, I want to say, before Instagram got really huge when blogging was still the primary mode of motherhood expression, where there it did feel like the, a more realistic vision that was more diverse might be the kind of transcendent form of motherhood that we saw on the internet. And then Instagram, which is so image heavy, it is not words heavy, it is image heavy. When that became the dominant mode and the way that people could make money writing, uh, being mothers, basically, that just went out the window because it was so visual. And so if you did not conform to a certain visual appearance, if your house was not perfect, if your children were not perfect, you weren't going to get that advertising money. So blogging was in a weird way more helpful to moms because it did open the door to talking about some of these issues. I wrote my memoir about a year ago and I talked about the fact that that I had sort of postpartum depression or this form of postpartum. I was worried that I was going to hurt my baby. Mm -hmm. And it was so I was so riddled with shame. I couldn't talk to anyone about it. It was really scary. And we, I wrote in my book about the fact that that these mommy blogs kind of opened the floodgates where women could talk about these things openly in a supportive community. And it sounds like Instagram and sort of current social uh, media is is less a healthy environment for that, and one where there's more judgment. But I but I do see things on Instagram that seem to encourage that kind of conversation, even on my feed. Oh, for sure. I mean, and that's the thing with social media. It is enormous. It is very hard to make generalizations about it either way. I mean, you can sort of pick at threads and and kind of try to look at the big picture. But even the sort of perfect vision of motherhood, that's what makes money. But there is definitely real talk. There are communities that are incredibly supportive and helpful. I have heard, especially from moms whose kids were in the NICU for a long time mm -hmm. or who experienced multiple pregnancy loss. That or have all, or like um, the, I think, autism community. I think Absolutely. it's a lot of support for each other. And, and they have found that to be lifelines. Um, and I think that the other thing that's happening now, and I see this in my own life, a lot of the most supportive communication is private. So it's in WhatsApp groups, it's in Discord circles, because the open internet is a trash fire. Like you yeah. tweet something and you might get some great feedback and you might get some vile feedback. That is, you know, it's just being on the open internet in any way where anyone can comment. I think if, if you're in a vulnerable place, not great. So the sort of more private um, kind of communication, I think people... Uh, are, are gravitating towards. When we come back, Jessica shares some solutions for moms and dads 
who have had enough. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Your New York Times parenting newsletter started about nine months before the pandemic hit. First of all, you were widely praised for being a lifeline for so many mothers. But how did how did this turbocharge all these collective forces that we've been talking about? So I think in their day to day, most parents, especially of young children, are so busy, they can't even think about the larger societal picture and how it's hard for everyone because we're so siloed from each other. And I think what happened during the pandemic is, um, and one mom said this to me in my reporting, that mothers are the shock absorbers of society. And everyone realized that when things fell apart, moms were just expected to be there to pick up the pieces. And if they ever complained about it, the response was, well, you decided to have kids, so suck it up. Um, And so the amount to which it was just, as I say in the subtitle of my book, unsustainable, that mothers were expected to educate their children, work, cook, you know, be emotional support for everybody just completely losing their minds and all of those things sometimes in the same moment. I often describe something that happened uh, in the summer of 2020 where I was listening to a conference call on my headphones while changing the laundry from the washer to the dryer and listening to my kids whine in the background because they were hungry for lunch. And I was just like, I am being pulled in so many directions in this millisecond and that this is every day for me um, and had been since March. I just, it just was not something that could go on in that way. And so I think, you know, I hesitate to term, to use the term radicalized because I think it's overused, but I think a lot of moms were radicalized by that moment. Um, They realized how little our country does to support parents and that no one was coming to fix it. And that really stuck with them even now, you know, where things 
obviously the COVID is still going on, but, you know, things are somewhat back to normal in terms of our schools being open and, you know, many services being back to at least some semblance of where they were. Um, But I think that sort of feeling of, I want to say almost betrayal has stuck with people. I know that Melinda Gates talks about the fact that when all is said and done, women spend a total of seven years uh, taking care of domestic chores, children, ailing parents, uh, mm-hmm. on and on. And it's 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 a seven more additional years than their partners. Hasn't that changed a little bit? Aren't fathers, I feel like my late husband, when our kids were super small, because uh, they were only two and six when he died, but I did feel like in those early years, my husband Jay really was, we co-parented. And aren't more couples doing that now? Absolutely. And I think so many dads stepped up. I mean, you know, if you look at the societal wide, yes, mothers are absolutely still doing more. But so many dads not only stepped up, but I think that there is this perception that dads don't want to be involved with their kids, which is a lie. Many, many dads want to spend more time with their children. And I think that was also a takeaway of many people during the pandemic was it it was incredibly hard. I mean, my kids were three and seven when it started. My husband at the beginning was probably doing more childcare than I was um, because his work had slowed down a little bit, whereas mine was like just wall to wall. Like it was the biggest news event in parenting that had ever happened. Right, right, right. So, you know, especially at the beginning of the, I would say in March and April, he was doing probably 70% of, stuff with our kids. Um, so lots of dads, I think, not only are more involved, but want to be more involved and find it incredibly unfair that the structures of our country are such that they cannot be more involved. I mean, paternity leave is, there's as much as we don't have enough paid maternity leave, it's even worse for paid paternity leave. I mean, my husband got a single day off when our second daughter was born. One, one day. Wow. <laughs> he was not happy about it. He was really unhappy about it. Um, so I think it is less uh, from a desire to be, like, they want to be with their kids. I think, again, it is the way society is structured that prevents them from doing so. And I do think, again, the change is incremental, but I do feel as, leadership of companies and politicians are get, you know, the rising generations have experienced a more egalitarian society. We will see more and more change. It just is going to take time. Well, let's talk about what change needs to happen, not only from a government policy perspective, but from a corporate America perspective and from a kind of cultural, educational attitude perspective, if that covers all the bases. (laughs) Okay, so politically, you know, that's the easiest answer, although the hardest to make happen, it's like paid leave, paid parental leave, paid sick leave, Um, you you know, universal healthcare, I feel like would fix so many ills because I think a lot of parents stay in jobs that are bad for them and their families because their health care is attached to them. Right. Um, and Helen Peterson, who was lovely enough to blurb my book, uh, we did a podcast together and she described the lack of universal health care or that, you know, our jobs are attached to health care 
the original sin of the workplace um, because it, it doesn't allow parents to, you know, maybe take a job that has more flexibility because the only jobs that have healthcare are absolutely full-time. That's just really the way it is. Um, so that sort of morass needs to be fixed. Um, in terms of the workplace beyond that, um, I think accepting that when people have young children, they are going to desire more flexibility in their lives. Um, and that that doesn't mean that they are less productive. I mean, there's so many statistics coming out of the pandemic that showed that, in fact, remote workers were more productive than, you know, in-office workers. So just sort of rethinking a lot of office norms. Um, certainly many, many jobs need to be in person, but just sort of reevaluating the way things have always been and whether that is serving most people, because we're not just talking about parents here. Most people will have to care for other humans at some point in their lives, whether that is elder care, whether that is caring for a spouse, whether that's caring for friends. I mean, we just devalue care in every possible way. So it's not just parents. I think that it's actually one of the problems is that we just associate this desiring of flexibility and humanity um, with mothers, because it is simply not true that only mothers desire that kind of flexibility for caregiving. So that's really important. Um, I almost think the cultural piece is the hardest um, because we have so many ingrained expectations. Um, and that was one of the things I really wanted with the book was to think about my own assumptions and the own pre the pressures I had put on myself um, and try to figure out where these even came from. Like the, you know, we already talked about sort of pregnancy, but to this day, and my older daughter is almost 10, I still feel guilty about being sick when I was pregnant with her, even though it was completely out of my control. And so just asking, where does the idea that you are supposed to feel good during pregnancy even come from? Because most people don't feel great, at least at some point, <laughs> even if yeah. you're not up every second of the day. Um, so it's just sort of at every time you feel like you're not measuring up, just even asking yourself, why do I feel this way? Where is this pressure coming from? And it is it is it from a place that is working for me? I mean, sometimes I feel pressure and guilt and it's it's okay. Like I have a lot on my plate. I want to do a lot of things. So, it's okay to feel stressed and guilty some of the time, but I think continually asking yourself where these expectations are coming from and if they're coming from a place that you actually respect. The good news, Jessica, is that People are talking about it. I think companies are taking it seriously. I think as the workplace is being reevaluated, um, you know, everyone is giving this a lot more thought because of the pandemic. So maybe in a weird way, that's a silver lining. And I know as somebody who came up in a very traditional kind of work environment, I myself have a, my own implicit biases about oh, people working from home, they're goofing off, they're eating candy and watching soap operas, which are, you know, have been ingrained in me for some weird reason. And it's just not true. When you look at all the studies about productivity, it doesn't matter where you are. In fact, people get more done often when they're working remote. And I read an interesting article. It's always also when you work, because mm -hmm. some people want to work at night when their kids are in bed. And some people, you know, having that flexibility 
will not only make people happier and more productive in their in their home life, but happier and more productive in their work life too. Absolutely. And I think it's just, we're all going to have the things that we're tough on ourselves about. But like I said, it's just continually asking yourself, where do these ideas come from? And why do I think this way? And is it valuable to me and my family to think this way? Yeah. Take a moment and reflect. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Dr. Becky Kennedy, or Dr. Becky as she's known to her millions of followers, is a clinical psychologist who became Instagram's favorite parenting guru during the pandemic. In the three years since launching her Instagram account, Dr. Becky has built a membership-based parenting community called Good Inside, launched a podcast of the same name, and has written a book called Good Inside, A Guide to Becoming the Parent You Want to Be. Because Dr. Becky seems to have broken through the cluttered parenting market and has really tapped into the problems modern mothers and fathers face, we thought she might have some insights into some of the issues Jessica just talked about. You filled a huge need during the pandemic. I know before America shut down, you didn't have an Instagram account. Now you have 1.5 million followers, a book, a little bit of a mini empire going. So why do you think, Becky, you hit such a chord? And by the way, I've never been so grateful to have grown children than in the last few years because hats off to all the mothers and fathers, parents everywhere who had to juggle and deal with so much. And I love that shout out to everyone listening who had young kids, who had teenagers, who had their first baby, who were single parents, who were going through a divorce, who were who were married and still like no matter what, it was hard. It was so hard. And actually, the other thing we were talking about before this was how important it is to kids to to just name what's true, to talk about the hard stuff. We often think we're protecting them by not. But I think we're actually 
increasing a lot of their anxiety because again, then they feel alone. Right. So in and terms confused. Of, and confused. Nobody likes feeling alone and confused. Those two things together are awful, right? So I think during the pandemic, I think something that really maybe like helped me hit a stride with people is I do. I think I've always been someone who has never shied away from like naming the hard. Like even say, this is hard. We all yell at our kids. This pandemic sucks. This is so difficult. You are doing an impossible thing. You are a warrior. You did not mess up your kid forever when you yelled. Here are some words you can use. And I think during that time of so much uncertainty, yeah, when people knew like, okay, I can go somewhere and there'll be someone who's naming something that feels right on to what's actually happening in my house, who's not telling me necessarily how to make it all better, but who's just helping me tolerate how hard this is. Yeah, I think we all needed that. And I think that you were hearing the desperate cries of mothers everywhere. What were they saying to you? What were they struggling with? I guess just about everything, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest thing they were struggling with is like, is is this, tell me this is as hard as it feels, you know? like, And it's one of my core mantras for parenting is just this, feels hard because it is hard, not because I'm doing something wrong. And I always think that when something's really hard, if we can just validate for ourselves, wait, I'm not a horrible parent. Like this just actually is really hard to be home with two kids in a pandemic. Or even at this stage, this is really hard to manage through a tantrum in a grocery store. We don't then layer on the self-blame, which goes into I'm a horrible parent. I messed up this forever. If people saw me, they wouldn't believe that I'm this type of parent. When we add that layer, I think hard becomes impossible. And when we remove that layer, which is the impossible, it's still hard, but hard is, is far superior to impossible. <laughs> well, that's interesting too, because who's to say that a first time parent or even a second, third time parent has all the answers. It is really a kind of learn as you go process. And there isn't really a handbook for handling this. No, I mean, and this is the thing that gets me super fired up. Um, and I think is such a larger sociological problem that I feel like most drawn to almost more than any, you know, one parenting problem, this bigger problem, which is parenting is the hardest and most important job in the world. And it's a job we have, you know, 24 seven for a lot of years. Like your kids are older, you're still a parent, like you still parent. And most jobs in this country that we value, that we think are important, we really prioritize the people in those jobs getting training and resources. And not only that, like if I think about a surgeon I'd ever go to, because I would think surgery is like another really important, you know, really hard job, I would never see a surgeon who like got their tips on Instagram. Like I'd be like, oh, okay, like did you get training? And the, the surgeon who got the most training, the surgeon who had ongoing support, I think all of us would look at that surgeon positively. Not like, what's wrong with you? We'd be like, that's amazing. You know, when can I get an appointment? And with parenting, it's the opposite, where we just take this baby home from the hospital, we're given nothing. There's this bullshit about maternal instinct, right? So it's kind of saying, if you are struggling, it's your fault, you know? Mm -hmm. As opposed to, if I am struggling, maybe I wasn't set up to thrive. And maybe there are resources and support I can then go invest in not just for my kids, but again, just so I can feel more confident. So I think you're right. And I think that's a huge shift we need. Mothers have always had just incredible pressure to be perfect. And now more than ever, they are assaulted really by images and advice. And honestly, this manufactured idea on social media of, of mom influencers and 
look at me looking beautiful while I'm taking my child to the park. I mean, it's just everywhere. How do you advise parents to not let that permeate their psyches and make them strive for really unachievable goals as a parent? So many things I'd want to say to that. So first of all, I really think Good Inside is is this approach that helps parents become sturdier leaders. And being a sturdier leader, I think, really comes from learning to gaze in and notice, like, what do I have? What do I know? Versus do I need to define who I am and how much I'm worth based on things outside of me? And so I actually think, you know, what we hear a lot in our community is they feel so much less permeable so much less porous to the social media world. And even I hear all the time, like I've stopped following various accounts that I used to follow because I felt like it was this, you know, ideal version of who I wanted to be. And I realized, you know, forget, yeah, we could say it's fake or whatever. It just, it wasn't good for me. I love hearing that from parents. It doesn't make me feel good, right? And I think in social media, noticing what accounts make me feel empowered and what accounts make me feel anxious and shitty about ourselves. is like the way we all need to cleanse our, you know, social media um, I also think that a lot of this idea of perfect motherhood is intertwined with this idea of motherhood as martyrdom. So the perfect mother ideal we hear about on social media is not, you know, the parent who's, you know, prioritizing themselves at times, setting boundaries. It's like, look at the Pinterest crafts I've created. I've spent eight hours pouring myself out even though underneath I feel rageful and resentful and haven't done a thing for myself in the last two years, right? There's nothing that I care as passionately about as much as changing that idea of motherhood as martyrdom. (laughs) I also think that it's one of the reasons we created, frankly, our membership, that parents would say, like, I want this parenting content. It's so deep. Like, it doesn't solely belong (laughs) on social media. And I don't want to see it next to an account that makes me feel bad or next to something that's making me buy shoes I don't really want to buy, you know, frankly. And so I think us all having spaces to connect with other parents away from this like shiny ideal is so important. Whether we find that in an online community, whether we find that in our in real life community, the only place we get parenting information cannot be the world of social media, which, yes, yeah, sets us up to feel not good enough. And how do you handle sort of you being held up as this kind of ideal and people worrying that maybe you're you're sitting in judgment of them? Yeah, I mean, I, and I really mean this to anyone even listening or like if people do feel like that with me, like I'd, I really mean this, I'd want to know right away. That would like be super important because I very much want to always be part of the other camp. And I think it's why, first of all, like I, I never wear that much makeup. Like I never, you know, wear much besides a white t-shirt and leggings. So like that's how I show up on social media. Like I generally have food in my teeth. And so like that's why I show up that way on social media. Um, and I think I try to say as often as possible things like, don't think I do this stuff with my kids all the time. So here's what I did when I yelled at my own kid. Right. Here's why repair is so important because, yeah, I think we all need a model of parenting that gives us ideas we might not have thought about because that just helps all of us grow, but holds that right next to, you know, just humanness. And and that's what, you know, I try to do. And, and that's super important to me. So anyone out there who thinks I like I don't even know that what you means. have the answers, that all the answers, you always do it right. I think you are very vulnerable in the way you communicate your ideas, acknowledging that, hey, this is how I did it. In other words, this is how 
I corrected something I was doing wrong. Yeah, and like someone coming to me, I really mean this. I feel very good if someone's like, here's what's going on with my kid. Can you help me understand it differently? Can you help me think of other ways to intervene? And I do feel really good about doing that. But like if that exact situation happened with my kid in my home live, like don't think Dr. Becky would be responding. Like Becky, who's human, who has triggers, who's overwhelmed. Like I would need my own consultation with Dr. Becky after to be like, what should I do? You know, so my husband's always like, I always want to tag your personal account on your Instagram account. And one time he's like, you would really like this reel. And he sent it to me and I pulled it up. <laughs> it was like my own reel. I was like, damn it. Like, you know, because I was like super reactive with my kids that day. Right. <laughs> so just being real. Yeah, I think. Not, like, not a real, but real. Yes, nobody, <laughs> right. Nobody, <laughs> nobody has it together all the time. And, and like, I really mean this. I wouldn't wish Dr. Becky on my kids as their parent. Like, I can't imagine my kids going into adulthood being like, you know what love and closeness and healthy relationships are? Someone always being attuned to what's going on for you and understanding you. Like if there's something that's gonna set them up for a history of like really awful relationships because they'll never get into one because they're gonna be like, but where is my perfect partner? It would be that expectation, right? So I want my kids to know that in general, I approach them with respect and understanding and seeing that good inside them. And when I don't inevitably... I will more often than not go to repair. And I think that is what kids need, not some, quote, perfect parent, which doesn't exist anyway. She had so many interesting and important things to say that we thought Dr. Becky deserved an episode all her own. So we're releasing our conversation in full. You can find it in my next question feed beginning tomorrow, December 2nd. You'll hear us get into all of it. Dr. Becky's unique parenting philosophy the importance of repair, and why we all could benefit from looking inward and reparenting ourselves. Honestly, it was so eye-opening. That'll be in part two of our Parenting Deep Dive. Now, a huge thank you to both of my guests, Dr. Becky Kennedy and Jessica Gross. You can sign up for Jessica's parenting newsletter at newyorktimes.com and her book, Screaming on the Inside, the unsustainability of American motherhood is out December 6th. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, Associate Producers, Derek Clements and Adriana Fazio. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Zip. 
Sumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.